is correct. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Coffin, and welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. And today, we'll be discussing the 1984 supernatural comedy blockbuster, Ghostbusters, starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Sigourney Weaver, Rick Moranis, and Ernie Hudson. Ghostbusters is the story of three parapsychologists, the fast-talking con man Peter Venkman, the earnest believer Ray Stantz, and the emotionless brainiac Egon Spengler, who all go into business for themselves to rid New York City from unwanted ghosts and ghouls. One of their first clients is musician Dana Barrett, who is receiving troubling messages from some kind of dimensional portal manifesting itself in her apartment. As the Ghostbusters business booms, it's clear that New York City's paranormal activity is reaching a critical level. The EPA starts butting in where it really isn't needed, and Dana's whole apartment building emerges as a focal point for a supernatural cataclysm that threatens to leave the city in smoldering, marshmallow-covered ruin. With this much at stake and the city paralyzed, New York needs a couple of heroes to jump in and save the day. So who are you going to call? Ghostbusters was one of the first modern blockbusters, launching sequels, a reboot, animated spinoff series, a hit pop single, merchandising, games, and cultural touchstones that exist to this day. But Ghostbusters was also a breakthrough movie in its own right. It was the first comedy to feature a ton of special effects. It refuted Hollywood wisdom of the day that comedies in general could not make a ton of money. It was a crossover piece for many of its stars, enabling them to transition from crude, lowbrow comedies to fare with major mainstream appeal. And it's been widely hailed as one of the best movies of the 1980s, one of the greatest comedies of all time. And in 2015, the Library of Congress selected the movie for preservation in the National Film Registry. But more than anything, this is an endlessly rewatchable movie that blends comedy and light horror in a genre mashup that works so much better than it ever should have. There are so many things to love about this story of a bunch of guys chasing boogeymen in a city that never sleeps, but today we're going to talk about just a few of them. With me today is ecto-cooler aficionado Chris Crenshaw, proton pack technician Joe Pace, and Stay Puffed Chief Marketing Officer Tom Hespos. Everyone, welcome. Thanks, Thanks Bill. <laughs> Good to have you guys. All right, Chris, I'm down to get your take on this. I know you came early with a moment of truth in this, that it's actually one of my favorite parts of the movie as well, so take it away. My moment of truth, uh, the moment where I knew that I loved this movie comes about four and a half minutes in, I think, when Peter Venkman, as we are introduced to him, is testing two university students, male student and female students, to measure the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP. He uh, holds up flashcards with symbols on them. They try to guess the symbol. If they're wrong, or if Dr. Venkman has another agenda, he zaps them. I mean, we all remember the scene. It, it's hysterically funny, but it completely defines Dr. Venkman's character. And we know who he is from that moment forward. And we know that we shouldn't love him, but we do. And it, it sets up, I think, the tone of the whole movie. That poor male student, he is completely relatable. We all know exactly what he's feeling, but we don't care that much. Not really. We totally don't. <laughs> I'll tell you what the effect is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's pissing me off. One of the, the moments that just kills me so great is that you know, throughout the entire test, Bankman keeps showing the male student the card to show that he's wrong, and he never shows the female student what's on the card at all, right? And right. this poor guy doesn't even like get it. He's so busy getting freaked out because he's being shocked. Like the second time he gets shocked, his gum spits out of his mouth. <laughs> like he's so he's so jangled. And and the best part about it is that is that as the scene goes on, 
Venkman is actually proving his own thesis on this guy because he's getting better. He starts to figure out the cards. <laughs> yeah, right. And Venkman is so such a wavy so, lines. Yeah, yeah, such a wavy lines. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, you're no. gone. No. And he just—he's so laser focused on impressing this co-ed who just a walking case of moral turpitude that he just doesn't realize that he's actually proving work that would probably preserve the grant that they're about to lose and be kicked out on the street but that's like that's a, that's so vankman you know what did it for me though was like when that you know he's visibly nervous waiting for his electric show. <laughs> yeah. and then when he's finally fed up with the whole thing he's like you can keep your five bucks like you realize you're doing the whole thing for five bucks and you want to laugh at the guy some more you know <laughs> exactly and then and vankman's like i will <laughs> you know vankman probably never even had the five bucks which is the best part about it you know <laughs> And, and, the, and the other thing is, is, you adjust that for inflation, that's still only like $12. Like this guy's, <laughs> this guy's basically getting kids to walk into the Milgram test for 12, for 12 bucks. It's like, come on, man. Like, it's, just, it's just nefarious. It's so bad. And when shortly thereafter, they have gone to the library and they, they return to the university to find themselves being kicked off campus <laughs> as though tenure were not a thing. <laughs> the guy's like, you're... Your, your science is, is ridiculous, your methods are suspect or sloppy, and, and your results are highly questionable. And you're like, well, I mean, yeah, that's it, they are. <laughs> but they're comedy gold. <laughs> to, this, to your point on this, Chris, it's uh, one of the things that's the best thing about this movie, and we actually will talk about it a little later during my topic, is it's hilarious, but it's also bitingly satirical. And it, as all great satire does, it pokes fun at a, a wide variety of things and doesn't pull its punches anywhere. And goes after religion and politics and academia. And as someone who spent a lot of time as part of a research operation at a university, uh, I can say unilaterally, nothing like that ever went on in our shop. But I love the part when they are leaving, when Ray Stance, the, the Ackroyd character, is saying, you know, I like the university. They gave us they gave us resources. We didn't have to produce anything. I've been in the private sector. They expect results. I've thought of that myself so many times because it's 100% true. Uh, the difference yeah, between uh, the private sector and, and academia. You know, you mentioned, you know, tenure. I don't think these guys were teachers. I think these were, these were uh, research <laughs> postings that they had and, and the grants that they were getting from God knows where. I don't know where, probably DOD, they were getting their grants from. But it's such a, a beautiful skewering of the academic world in actually very little screen time. Yeah, absolutely. It is incredibly concise. I, I totally dig that too. I also like that you said that one of your favorite parts, I, I don't have a favorite part in this movie. I think that every five minutes is my favorite five minutes uh, of this movie. When I asked everybody to come up with their moment of truth, I realized I was asking a pretty tough question because, you know, this is one of those movies where the whole thing is kind of one big rolling moment of truth because it's just comedies go, it's so airtight. It's not the sort of thing where they spend a lot of time building up to each joke. It's just there's always something going on in the background. There's always some offhand comment. There's always some sort of chemistry between the characters. It's always giving you a reason either to laugh out loud, chuckle under your breath, or at least smile broadly, you know? It's what, it's 90 minutes? And I don't go to the bathroom. Like, I've yeah. seen this movie a hundred times, and I still can't. There's no three minutes where I'm like, oh, I'll no. miss this to go. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I love about this early scene with Bangman and the test is just, it does a couple things. One, I loved how, how much... The, the female student he's trying to impress like she's so into him which is like she, oh, yeah. really shouldn't, she really shouldn't be but she is and it just proves once again why charisma but the kids love us. Uh, yeah but it, it proves like why <laughs> charisma really should not be a dump stat right i mean like you can 
it's really, it's really a superpower. Just build their savings throw. Yeah, I mean, yeah. honestly, it's just, it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's, it's charm person all day long without a spell slot. It's just fantastic. But it does a lot to explain, like, to your point, Chris, what is Venkman all about and why should we love him even though we really shouldn't love him? But we do, and we can't help ourselves, and that's his whole thing, and that scene sets it up so perfectly, <laughs> yeah, which I, 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 which I adore. I say that she's really into him. She digs the attention, uh, you know, and being told she's special. And who doesn't? Of well, course. I mean, that's just universal. And so we feel it. But once the male guy gets up and like flips out and leaves, he turns right around and proceeds to set up the, 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 the guy where he, ask the dinner. And she's not walking out or anything. She's like entertaining right. the notion. Well, you know, she's like, well, I'm okay. special. Yeah. I'm special. <laughs> Baby, I have powers. Okay. And it's like, yeah, okay. How did we not schedule this for eight o'clock? Just about to say eight o'clock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's so good. It's so good. When you talk about this movie, you know, Bill Murray always kind of comes up. A lot of people point to this as, you know, one of his finest hours, right? I mean, he just owns this movie, owns his character. It's so fantastic. I mean, even Murray himself basically semi-retired from acting for a couple of years after this movie because he realized it was so, it was so good. He was like, ah, you know, I just don't know what I'm going to be able to do after this, to be honest. And he waited till Scrooge for a reason because he was like, he had to get over this whole, you know, Bankman thing of just, he just knew he nailed it so well. But, you know, he's up with some other great characters, too. Dan Aykroyd is, is very stance, and Harold Ramis is Egon Spangler. I mean, Spangler's like kind of a classic straight man, but he's like the moral straight man. He's earnest and a believer. He's earnest, where, but goofy. All the little failings and people that Bankman can detect and exploit just don't exist on Spangler. So they're just two animals living in symbiosis because they have so little to connect the two of them. And, and so it's neat seeing those two different straight men, but they don't really feel like non-characters. I always kind of like how, as good as Murray's character is, he doesn't completely push everybody else off the stage i really want to know how he does it though because like within a couple of minutes in the beginning of this movie like you're introduced to a couple of things where you're like this guy's a degenerate you know you see him you know, he's, he's out trying to talk ray into going into business out in front of the you know the building and he's got a pint in his hand and he's kind of you know just like does anybody even know what that is that's in that bottle? I mean, to me, it looked like he just grabbed like a bottle of peach schnapps or something. And it, like, it, it, I think it's apricot brandy. <laughs> something like a degenerate would drink. A couple of scenes later, you know, wine you know, walking stuff. out of the bank where, you know, Venkman's basically talked him into, you know, putting three mortgages on the, on the house that Ray grew up in. And you're like, this guy's kind of a jerk, but yet he pulls it off <laughs> where you still love him anyway. Like, yeah. I don't know how many people well, could do that other than Bill Murray. I mean, you love the guy or hate the guy. I don't know too many people who could have done that. I totally agree, Tom. And as I watched today, I was with a couple of other friends. And how hard must this movie have been for everybody else to act on? Because whatever Murray does always feels like it's spur of the moment. It just came to him right then. It's ad-libbed. I felt like I would spend all my time cracking up. I wouldn't be able to stay straight for the joke. And that actually to me made me realize how much better than i realized the performances by ray and egon are um they're oh, yeah, just awesome well you know I, I i think about that first of all Aykroyd had to act opposite belushi so this wasn't his first rodeo <laughs> well, sure. with that kind of presence and talent and being the straight man next to the, the tornado it's funny for me that to Bill's point, talking about how very different these three characters are, but the fact that they all have weight and presence in the narrative. And honestly, I know we're not supposed to compare things to other properties, but one of the ongoing conceits that the original Star Trek talks about, you know, you had if Spock was the brain and McCoy was the heart and, you know, Kirk was the, the lower part, 
we had that same uh, trifecta going here where Egon is the head, Stance is the heart, and then Venkman is the crotch. I mean, that's essentially the, the relationship and that all three of them together make this functioning body. I like that. That is great. That is a fantastic bit of analysis right there. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I think about why I enjoy a movie, I try not to dwell too much on the on the making of it necessarily, you know, because often the drama behind the making of it really is not really germane to what actually makes it on the screen. They do impact, you know, how the roles are played and how the story plays out. And and the first is, you know, to your point, Joe, Aykroyd being next to Belushi. Uh, he actually initially wrote this to be a project for him and and John Belushi. And unfortunately, you know, tragically didn't turn out that way. As he as he pursued it, they really wanted to get uh, Bill Murray on this. And the funny thing is, is that they knew, I guess, Murray has this tendency to attach to things at the last second. And so like, you know, sort of skate in, you know, like, you know, in a Venkman type fashion, I suppose, sort of, <laughs> sort of cruising at the last second. So it kind of made it impossible to really super pre-plan this movie. They just, they had to sort of beg for ability to go ahead and make it. And then, then Murray, you know, shows up and like, okay, now we're off to the races. And so the whole thing, they had to make it in this crazy frenetic pace. And so as a result, yeah, they had to work in kind of this ad-lib fashion because of Murray, but also they sort of wanted it that way, because otherwise they wouldn't have waited for Murray to show up, you know? So the form and function ultimately kind of come together beautifully. And I think it's one of the reasons why this this movie just works so well, because it just has this very unique wavelength, with very unique components, and it just comes together in a way that no other movie could have come together. I just, I just love it. Um, I, I've never seen the script for this movie, but when you talk about like things that seem like ad-libbed and the way that Murray was able to do that, I can't think of that scene where he walks into the apartment with Dana for the first time. And he's got his little bulb thingy with the wand, and he, he does that thing on the piano with the top two keys. He's like, they hate that. How, how is that not ad-libbed? Like, that cannot be in the <laughs> exactly. script. Exactly. I, I, that, is, that is when I said that, Tom. <laughs> that is the moment at which I said it. <laughs> And he says, do you know how to use this? Yeah. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, the thing with Bankman is he's the kind of guy I would never want in my friend group because I would be the one mortgaging my house on his say-so. I would be so vulnerable to his charms that I'd just be led astray in a hundred different really regrettable ways and wouldn't be able to hold him accountable for it. You know, I wouldn't be able to stay mad at him too long. And that's just this thing. And so, you know, I look at Minkman and he's, he's a great character because he can do whatever he wants. And thank goodness, all he wants to do is kind of pull short cons and maybe get involved in this ghost hunting business that may or may not be real for him. Bill Murray's performance, we've seen it before. I mean, um, we saw it to a certain extent in Stripes that the, the archetype that he's developing that turns into Minkman. This creates a, a film persona that later will give us Half the stuff Jim Carrey does, half the stuff that Vince Vaughn did, half the stuff Robert Downey Jr., mm. that fast-talking, patter-delivering, you know, anti-hero comes directly from this is the the sort of sui generis of the DNA of that. Or, or so Bugs Bunny. I want to thank Bill Murray's Venkman for giving us Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark because it is a direct descendant. Yeah, yeah. Chris, were you, you going to say something? I, I was just going to say, well, there's you know, Bugs Bunny. I mean... <laughs> who, who I, I think is an absolute basis for that character, as well as Vic the Lounge Singer from SNL, if you remember him. Star Wars, done on a Star Wars. <laughs> well, well, speaking of SNL, I got to say, before we had this whole conversation starting, I know Tom and I had spoken about different things, and he had mentioned this great obscure SNL skit where, where Jim Belushi is, is running this cable show called The Ghostbuster <laughs> Show. And and he's like these two these two Spanish girls come in and they're just going bonkers on it and it's this rambling thing and you know it's funny because he mentioned this and and he mentioned how hard it is to find the skit online and I'm like well this is my Saturday I'm gonna find this you know 
And I go diving deep and yeah, it is just not there. I just couldn't find a copy of it, you know, anywhere. Like I went to NBC's site and I went to SNL and they actually have their archive of skits. And I found, I was able to nail down which episode it's from. And oddly enough, I remember the episode because the episode when Frankie goes to Hollywood plays, and I remember as a kid thinking how bad they sounded live. I'm like, oh boy, they're terrible. I have it on VHS, but I am yeah. not looking up a VCR so I can bring a clip to this show. I love it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, not happening. Yeah, and Frankie goes to Hollywood. George Carlin was the host. It was one of those episodes of SNL that I just played over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. It's also, I just love the circularity of it. That Jim Belushi is the one playing this thing, riffing off of something that his brother would have done. You know, so it's oh, and he's great because you know, not to get into other material too much, it just goes to show how popular Ghostbusters was. Everybody was sick of hearing of it, you know. And here comes Jim Belushi, like the fanboy, and he's we're going to talk about the greatest movie ever made, Ghostbusters. <laughs> and you know, like that's how big it got, and it's yeah, yeah, how big yeah. the movie was. You know, he still goes buster. <laughs> he goes busters. <laughs> One of the greatest testaments to this, and this is sort of the downside to being a, a pop culture blockbuster is that you can definitely overstay your welcome, right? Okay. You know, especially if, the, if they get the merchandising right, it can proliferate to such a degree that you were just sick and tired of seeing it everywhere. And the thing for me that really did it was they actually didn't do this for this movie. They did it for the sequel, uh, Ghostbusters 2. But when um, High Sea decided to turn its citrus cooler drink into ecto cooler, right? They made it from orange to this really this like radiator fluid coolant green type color. And the funny thing is, is they kept producing that stuff till like 2001. <laughs> I mean, it's like talk about overstaying your welcome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they just never stopped. And it just kind of blows my mind that they were able to do that. And you never got the feeling that, oh, they just forgot to turn off the switch or just come up with some other flavor. They just were like, no, it's actually, it's still, it's still. Everybody know who Slimer is. Yeah. Everyone knows who Slimer is. Exactly. Right on the box. Yeah. You guys were too old. I was nine in 1984. I was, I was uh, right in the wheelhouse for Ecto Cooler. That was, you know. Well, to be, to be fair, even when I went to college, I was still in the wheelhouse for Ecto Cooler, but probably not for the reasons that High C intended. So. So, did you guys ever play the Atari? Uh, it wasn't Atari, the uh, Commodore 64 game. Or Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. That was Good a fantastic time. game. Sorry. <laughs> you had the car and everything. Yeah, the, the two guys coming in from side to side. And eventually, you had to fight the marshmallow man. <laughs> I never had a ColecoVision. Once upon a time, there were two tribes, okay? There was Atari and there was ColecoVision. And it was from that age when video game consoles were furniture. They had wood paneling on them and everything, you know? I don't think there's a single kid in America who had both. I really, really don't. Why would you have an Xbox and a PS3? <laughs> yeah. However many PS there are now. Well, look, Joe, so I know that, you know, you've got a, good, a pretty good moment of truth with this movie as well. I'd love to hear your take on it. And, you know, it's a great moment, but I'd love to know why exactly it kind of resounds with you. Sure. Uh, well, we'll move along uh, substantially. I'm sort of fascinated that we have one very early moment and then the other three of us have ones that come much later in the film. Um, and I'll, I'll stand by my earlier point that just about anything could be a moment of truth in this, in this movie. But for me, the part that I've enjoyed increasingly as I get older comes after the Ghostbusters have been taken to jail, which is a great scene in and of itself in the cell. But then they're brought into the mayor's office and they've been brought there because of the, uh, the EPA's involvement. I'm not sure what this, how this plays with your rules here. No, Paul, no, but to say it. <laughs> uh, 
you know, is it Peck? Is I think the guy's yeah, name. Uh, He's called and, Pecker. Uh, in they, yeah, yeah. They, they make sure to call him Pecker to his face, but it's Peck. Brilliantly, brilliantly played, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. but, if I can just jump in, I will say this. Uh, William Atherton has said that he would get stopped in the street like 10 years later and people would still come up and like accost him Bankman style and to his perturbation. Like, over, I heard that you have no dick. Like that overstays yeah. welcome on him. He's like, all right, I, I, you know, can we can we at least please hate me for being the bad guy and like die hard? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, um, he is uh, pitch perfect in Ghostbusters yeah. as a bad guy. So you wind up in the mayor's office and here's Peck from the EPA. And here's Venkman and here's uh, the mayor and a bunch of other people, big old fire chief and everybody else. And, and it's crisis management time. The emergency management center is open and this mayor is at his wit's end. He doesn't know what's going on. Nobody's giving him answers. The fire chief can't give him answers. No, the bishop can't give him answers. And here's this guy from the EPA, the only guy giving him some unvarnished truth. He says, I've got these guys. that are fine. So here comes Venkman, right? And immediately the mayor knows he's a con man. The mayor, this is a kindred spirit here. We, we both make a living off of fooling most of the people most of the time. So he listens to both of these stories and he listens to the EPA guy. And then he listens to Venkman and he goes, I know this guy. This guy over here, I've made, he's a low-level bureaucrat bucking up the ladder. I got no time for that. I'm going to listen to this guy. And so there's nothing more Reagan 1980s, this film as a, as, a, as a creature of its time, than that they took an earnest civil servant in EPA and made him a bad guy for looking to he's protect the environment. Absolutely right. He's right. Elevate. He totally he's is. 100% correct. <laughs> he totally he's is. He has nailed these guys to the wall. And you take this politician who we know is... He's not necessarily sleazy, but he's, you know, the Ed Koch, you know, he's, he's one of these guys. He's a Paul, he's a player. And then you take Venkman, who's, the, who's also a player. And these are our heroes. And in this moment, they, they recognize in each other that we're both bullshit artists, but this is a moment for our BS. And, and I love it so much. And I love that the bishop comes in and says, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Go with this guy. And <laughs> the then, bishop, like, is, a, doesn't that look like? <laughs> he's, he's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but, but when, when Venkman leans in and he speaks this guy's language, Peck doesn't speak his language. Peck yeah. is like, oh, here's the greater good and all these issues. And Venkman leans in and he says to him, looks him in the eye and says, you, Lenny, will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. But this is, to me, the t- part that I talked earlier about satire. It's a broadly hilarious film. The satirical moments are timeless and perfect. And this to me was is, is one of the scenes that takes it from a hilarious comedy into really being a, an, an artistic absolute success. There's a lot to unpack in this particular scene because it, <laughs> because it, it, it is so great. Oh, like yeah. the comedic density of this thing is like meteorite level. It's just, there's so much going on here. But one of the things I really love is he's like, you know, I, you, know you will save millions of registered voters. And that's when they cut, that's when they cut to the archbishop and he's looking at him. He practically winks yeah, at him. Yeah. He's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Like it's like oh yeah like you know what to do and and that's when there's this beat and he goes get him out of here and that's when they, <laughs> and they basically frog march back out of the office like total indignity and it's funny because Peck is such an uber jerk and you just you want to see him go but to see him just come just whisked out just practically ridden out on a rail is is really fun but it's also everybody has been in that place where you know you're in the right, you know your argument may not be the, the strongest, but you just want the person in charge to see through all the fog and know that you're the right call to make. And most times we don't end up on the right side of the decision, right? You know, you're just like, oh man, if only they could have seen. And you're kind of waiting like, please, mayor, can you please just see you know, what's going on here? And, and the mayor, he, he just makes that complete call and just, you know, 
bang, <laughs> and just called it. And you're like, yes. The, the broadcast TV cut, where in the movie, the mayor asks, you know, is this true? And Venkman says, yes, this man has no dick. And they, they, everybody starts getting angry, and Venkman says, well, that's what I heard. In the TV cut, you don't get that stuff about him having no dick, but you get Venkman saying, well, that's what I heard about nothing at all. <laughs> one of my favorite TV cuts. That moment is, is <laughs> I mean, just, I'm powerless to not laugh out loud when I see it. But when you hear Venkman go, well, that's what I heard, it, the, the sound quality in that, has a sound of an overdub. I'm convinced he ad-libbed that moment because there's a similar moment when they're first doing the job in the hotel, right? The flowers and, are yeah, still the standing. The flowers are still standing. It's a great ad-lib line. Every time I hear it, I just laugh so hard because it's like, he didn't have to say that. He just couldn't help himself. You know, in my head canon, he totally ad-libbed that whole, you know, that's what I heard, which is such a great, like, it's just such a self-incriminating, just petulant way to non-justify your out-of-bounds comment, right? It's like, it's just, it's just doubling down on being a childish idiot, but like you love him for it. Like, yeah, good job, man. Well done. I've got one more thing to say about Peck. I absolutely love that at this point in the movie, he is no longer an issue. He's been frog marched out of the, the mayor's office and he is no longer relevant. But the filmmakers ensure that we get a scene of him being drenched in 140 pounds of shaving cream at the end, just because they know we want it. You <laughs> wanted it. You know what the temperature molten marshmallow has to be? That guy probably died from third oh, yeah. degree burns in the hospital. And you're all like, yay! He, he suffered horribly. He suffered a medieval torment for doing his job like he's supposed to. It's like, no. We know he's a jerk. Yeah. We know he's a jerk because he's got a beard and it's the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. in the 80s, everybody, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was it was it was a bad time for the bearded, yeah, for sure. Again, I'm just about getting into the, the movie making part of it though. One of my favorite factoids about this is that William Atherton, when they first did that shot, they hit him with like this crazy amount of this goop, you know, like this, the, the cream they hit him with, and it like knocked him flat, like it almost like it injured him. Like he got so plastered by it. So they had to do it again with less. And so I just love that they're like, no, no, <laughs> put as much in there. It may actually kill him, but this is what the audience needs. <laughs> it's just it's just like the hate for Peck went so deep. But to get back to what Chris is saying is that I look back on it, especially like as an adult, you know, I look back and out of the realm of, you know, the, the 80s where anything government was bad and that sort of stuff. I mean, yeah, Peck was right. I mean, these guys are not only running a completely untested apparition containment system. They're walking around town with nuclear accelerators on their backs. Unlicensed. Right? Yeah, unlicensed. Okay. And, and, and they're very explicit about that. They're very explicit. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 but the, the funny thing about it, though, is it, when you talk about like the feeling of the time and how this joke lands is not that far ahead of that scene in the movie, Egon comes right out and basically is like, yeah, this system is, it's really fragile. Like it's really overloaded. We need to do something about this. Like he's calling out, you know what? We've got yeah. a serious, we got a serious problem here. So, but somehow it's Peck who's the bad guy. Now, granted, he should have pulled the plug the way that he did, but he pulled the plug on something that was clearly primed to go anyway. I mean, the Ghostbusters couldn't even be bothered to go to a zoning meeting. They just set up this basically a nuclear weapons facility down in Tribeca, okay? Just on their own. By the movie's logic, that's okay because you know what? It's private industry, baby. And, and they're doing it to incarcerate without trial what we can only assume to be human spirits. <laughs> I never I thought mean, about I, it like that. They're, they're, these are people's grandparents. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that guy, you know, that little green slimer that pops up out of the hot dog cart. He was, with the he was just hot a hungry 11-year-old who started in 1912. <laughs> exactly. 
I know. <laughs> doing all this unlicensed garbage, and the next time you hear about it is that Twinkie scene, yeah, where they're talking about yeah, the grid overloading. And... <laughs> I, do, I do like the idea, though, they're not being due process for apparitions. That's pretty. That's a pretty. That's a. That's pretty hilarious. <laughs> it's good. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. So my moment of truth in the movie comes before the um, the city hall scene where we have, you know, dogs and cats, <laughs> mass hysteria. But it, it's, it's after Peck actually shuts down the grid, right? So we're slightly out of order. And for me, it's the part that I love because it's actually not, I don't think it's a part of the movie that most people look at as one of their favorite parts, but something that I always just loved. I loved it as a kid and I love it more when I watch. And it's just, it's that scene when they've shut down the grid, it's blown up, they're all fighting the streets and it just cuts away to this little musical scene, right? Which is like super 80s synth pop. And you just see all the ghosts escape and they're just flying in these like columns of pink light throughout the city. I love that song, by the way. It's cool. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a cool song. The guy who wrote it did like that one song and he was out. He, you never saw him again. Like, all right, beyond one hit wonder territories. But I love that scene so much because it does a couple things for me. First of all, it's that pivot in the story where despite all the jocularity, this is the point where the movie finally had to go, okay, now it's serious. Now there are actual stakes to play because all the ghosts are, are back out again. But the other thing I liked about it was, you know, and I think back to when I first saw the movie. <laughs> so when I first when I first saw Ghostbusters, I went on my first date ever, right? And completely blew it like six minutes in when they had that great scene in the New York Public Library and, and the librarian turns to the ghost and is like, rah! And I just completely freaked out. Like, whoa! I like threw my popcorn and all that and completely humiliated myself in front of my date. So needless to say... That's a jump, that's a hell of a jump scare though. Like I remember that I was, freaking me out and certainly it freaked my yeah. son out, you know, like when we watched the movie together for the first time, like he didn't want to watch the yeah. rest of the movie because I that heard one there's jump a walk scare. Of marshmallow man. I wasn't ready for this. And all of a sudden she like, it scares the crap. And I mean, Sally was like, yeah, this is, um, this is not happening. I'm like, okay. You know, but what I loved about it is that when the ghosts get away, you know, you're seeing not just ghosts going everywhere, but you see them actually starting to freak with people in broad daylight. And I thought it was really kind of a cool choice because, you know, this is a movie that tried to blend humor and, you know, Dan Aykroyd, you know, was like kind of seriously into the paranormal sort of thing. He wanted it to be slightly scary. He wanted there to be more of a serious aspect to it, you know, and eventually the movie kind of clawed all that back and get got more and more openly hilarious, which is great. But this is one of those moments where it's a little bit more truer to Aykroyd's original vision, where it's actually, it's kind of creepy and it's kind of scary. And you're not quite sure what's going on. And I love the idea of ghosts messing with people you know, away from all the trappings we normally ascribe to the scary and supernatural. It's not dark. It's not remote. I mean, you should be, if there's anywhere you should be safe from ghosts, it's in the middle of New York City in the middle of the day at a hot dog cart. And yet they're, they're slimer busting out. Or you're trying to get a cab. There's some zombie driving the cab or you know, you're going to this, you know, the subway and some weird freaky thing just come bombing out of the subway and newspapers are flying. And I just, I just loved all that. I thought, I thought it was really cool. And, and, and it really sort of set the stakes of the city is at risk. You know, the city is in, in danger. And I guess what I liked so much about that as well was just that it sets up, you know, when our heroes, you know, finally prevail, spoiler alert, Winston Zeddemore is like, I love this town, right? Like, why would he? This is like, everything has gone wrong in this town. You know, everything's gone wrong. But, you know, this is one of those things where the movie came out at a time when New York was kind of a great big cesspit, right? I mean, it was a yeah. city synonymous with mismanagement crime with drugs with decay with mm. all these horrible things right and it's not a city that was easily glamorized at all you know but this story and you especially see it like as we get deeper in the story but ghostbusters makes a point of not just making this about trying to save a city but trying to save a city most people would not want to save they make this love letter to new york and in so doing 
actually helped to rehabilitate the image of New York as a city, as a city worth saving, a city worth believing in. And I, I thought it was really cool. And it's like, you wouldn't have gotten that if you wouldn't have gotten that great scene of ordinary people just being flatly terrified by these horrible things that the city otherwise has no way to stop. And I just love how that all came together. I thought those were really cool, a really cool turn. It was a, a spot of seriousness in an otherwise very funny, very unserious movie. But I think, you know, when you stop and you balance the, the sweet with the salty a little bit, it makes for a much more balanced whole. And I really, I just love that moment a lot. Oh, I love that about it too. You know, you know where else you kind of get that is, you know, when you see uh, Rick Moranis' character run out the front and the dog's chasing him and he's up against, you know, what I guess it's is like Tavern on the yes, Green. Yeah. It's, you know, and he's, he's about to get mauled by this gigantic spectral dog outside. And, you know, everybody, he's up against the wall and he's screaming and everybody's seeing him. And then like two seconds later, like back to their dinner conversation. The pores are such a hassle. <laughs> You know, the, um, to, your, to your point, Bill, where you talk about the pivot of the, that sort of dark aspect to it, New York was very much a, a gritty, this is more the New York still of Taxi Driver than it is the New York of Home Alone 2, right? I mean, this is, this is not a kinder, gentler New York City. When Ray and Winston are driving, just shortly before this scene, and they're tired and they've been working hard and they start talking about biblical verses and they're talking about, you know, maybe this is real. Like, you know, maybe we've been so busy because stuff is actually starting to happen here. And it's dark, it's nighttime, and they're driving across the bridges. And there's a, a, a realness to that scene and those characters. It's not a funny conversation. There are no punchlines to it. It's not witty patter. These guys are legitimately concerned. They're legitimately engaged in the work that they're doing. And they express that concern in a, in a very uh, honest and, and candid way that I think starts to set the sit stage for that pivot that you're talking about. It's because when they show back up, it's right when Con Ed had shut it down at Peck's behest and their nightmare now is coming true. But I think that that's very much part of that same scene and that same transition away from the, the goofy con artists and, and the, you know, into the more serious parts of the film. Yeah. Agreed. And they're driving over the bridge because anybody who works in New York who cares about their work drives over the bridge. <laughs> That's truth, <laughs> even even now. Well, you know, Tom, you had brought up a really good, really good moment, which is again, it's Stanley's up against the glass, and nobody can be bothered to help him. And that was like kind of classic of the the notion of New York at the time, whereas you could be on fire and nobody's going to stop and put you out. You know, they're just going to stop and look at you, you know. And 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 that's always been a part of New York, but I think you really especially felt it at that point, where just it, the the city felt like a deeply uncaring place. But but it was also tinged with this notion, which remains still today, which is that New York is a place where literally anything can happen. You know, like there's a great moment where, like when the one, the one, you know, hound blasts out of the apartment building and runs across, you're like, whoa, what is that? And earlier on, one of the doormen is like, yeah, you know, some cougar ran out of here. <laughs> And it's like, he's just like, first of all, he can't tell what a cougar actually is. He just sees this big horn monster run out. Like, well, it must be a cougar. I don't know, whatever, you know, because somebody calls it a bear as well. Yeah. But like, but I love, I love what the doorman calls it a cougar because he probably remembers some other time in being a doorman when some other tenant in some of the building actually had a cougar. And like, it's just such a New York thing. Like, yeah, you know, crazy stuff happens. What can you do? If I cared about this, I'd care about everything. And I can't be bothered because it's New York. Hey, you know, and, and that moment with having on the green is so great because people are so callous you know you see him like under attack by this this invisible creature and they just sort of stop and i'll go back to their food <laughs> it's just this music starts again yeah it's like yeah. it's like that scene would have played differently in kansas city i mean that much i know for a fact 
During the scene you mentioned, Bill, when Rick Moranis is being chased by the hellhound out of his apartment, there's a, just a one-second shot. It's probably my favorite single moment of the entire film. Moranis runs out of his apartment, closes the door behind him, and, and ha- takes off toward the elevator. The dog comes through the door and just head plants into the wall <laughs> and, and falls. And nothing's made of it. It's not like – it's yeah. not really a gag moment, but it should have been. They just didn't <laughs> have to make it one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. There's something just so funny about these things, like trying to get yeah. through New York. You know, they have some of the same difficulties that we do. Getting yeah, New York's a trying place, <laughs> even for supernatural minions of, of of Babylonian, you know, death gods. Like even still, it's too crowded, it's too cramped, and the corners are too tight. <laughs> you know, Bill, you, you you talked earlier about this being um, sort of a, a an oddly even misplaced uh, civic pride exercise for the city of New York. And you get a lot of that as the movie goes down the third act. And uh, Venkman becomes oddly this, you know, rogue, this degenerate, becomes the spokesman for New York. He talks about, you know, nobody steps on a church in my town. He says, let's show prehistoric how we do things downtown. And, and he's a sailor. He's in New York. And he, like, he repeatedly, his pattern takes on this image of like, I'm New York. New York is a dirty and a funky place. And these are the sort of dirty down on the lot guys who are going to represent it. And I don't think it's, it's too much of an overstatement to say that this might have even, to your point, been the, the start of a sense of New Yorkers feeling okay about themselves again. And feeling yeah. like, hey, New York is something to be proud of. And then, you know, winds up, unfortunately, in the eventual Spider-Man movie where they're on the bridge. Ah, you don't mess with us. You know, 9-11. <laughs> yeah. But this very much, there's an identity to it. Yeah. And, and Venkman is the one to inhabit that, right? And that's why he gets those lines. Well, there's a great scene when they're finally, you know, and the mayor's like, all right, what do you need? They take off and all the New York guard. Or everybody says, everybody's finally rallying to take care of it, right? And then Ghostbusters is the head of it. You know, there's, there's a crowd waiting for them, right? They get out and everybody's cheering and going bonkers. It's almost like the Yankees in the Canyon of Heroes, right? It's like that sort of thing. Like that, that sort of spontaneous demonstration just feels like a very un-New York kind of moment, which is why that moment feels so great. Because somehow these four dudes with nuclear ray guns on their backpack have somehow corralled the will of New York. And they make a point of showing all these different people who are there. There's like 80s punk rockers, there are Hasidic Jews, there's yuppies. I mean, there's like every- Catholic priests. Yeah, there's like every easily identifiable tranche of New York's public life that you would see on the streets is visible in those shots, right? It's like there's a little microcosm of the Big Apple and they've all come out to root for these guys. And you're like, how did that even happen? And, and then, which, which is cool though. They were on TV. Yes, mom, those guys on TV. <laughs> but Bankman does a cool thing actually, you know, when he gets out, at one point he holds a great stance. He's like, great stance, the heart of the, you know, the, the, the heart of the ghost <laughs> He's like, oh, hey, everybody. At that point, he's kind of morphed from a con man to a pitch man to a hype man. And like, he's sort of, he's becoming a different kind right. of front dude. You realize Venkman scales infinitely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he can do all these things, which, which is really, really pretty awesome. And this is what this movie does is like, it has these great moments where it builds up this momentum and then it purposely breaks it for the purposes of comedy. And so, you know, they show up and they, they get greeted like heroes. And then the building shakes and all this stuff falls down. And everyone's like, what happened? That the Ghostbusters turn out they're not dead. They come out and everybody cheers for them again. So we get like a second hero thing. And like, all right, let's go in. And we cut to them moments later, trudging up the stairs and like the 11th floor. Like, oh man, so many stairs. <laughs> like you never think about how do heroes get to the top of a building in a crisis? You know, it's like- You have to go back and then li- and watch that scene again to see the music. Like there's so much going on behind the thing there. Like they get into the building the music, you know, the Saving the Day track from the album. I, mean, I had it on cassette. I'm oh, sure yeah. everybody else did too. The music stops and goes back to the ding, the ding, the ding, the ding, you know, that, that <laughs> piano theme. The, 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 the slumpy walking around too. As they're climbing the stairs 
and it just the whole thing just punctuates it so well yeah. you know as Venkman's sitting there going uh tell me when we get to 20 I'm gonna throw <laughs> up you know like <laughs> yeah. yeah it makes you wonder like how did these heroes ever get to uh, the top yeah of the it's also kind of a new york thing too because i mean like anybody who spent a significant amount of time in new york at some point in time had to go up the stairs longer than you know what you would typically expect to do and and you start to learn very quickly how out of shape you really are going upstairs is a truth machine for your body like few others and <laughs> you were in like 50 pounds of nuclear particle accelerator and on your on your back man you're going up yeah exactly Oh, it was difficult for me. You know, here the ten-year veteran of a fifth-floor walk-up. So, uh, yeah, even without the unlicensed nuclear accelerator, exactly. it gets to you. But you know, once there's always groceries. There's, there's always that. Oh yeah. But you know, once they get up to the top of the building, that's when we finally get to the final act of this whole thing. And Tom, that's where your moment of truth comes in. It happens kind of towards the end of the movie, and it's kind of a great thing that sort of ties things together. So I'd love to get your take on it. It's actually in that same scene, you know, where they talk about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man being a sailor in New York. You know what we need to do for sailors who come to New York? The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man has stepped on the church, is now actively pursuing our heroes. It's on fire and it's 100 feet tall and it's climbing the side of the building to get to them. They have no idea what they're going to do. And you've got Ray, Venkman has said, has gone bye-bye. You've got Egon, who is terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. And they're all kind of huddling behind the wall to figure out what, the, what it is that they're going to do. And Egon says, I've got a radical idea. We'll cross the streams. All right. So, you know, obviously you need some kind of a resolution to this thing. You need a way to bring, bring the big bad guy down. But for me, that was the end of Egon's arc right there. You know, in the beginning of the movie, you see him like right in the public library scene. He's getting kicked around quite a bit. Venkman's making these stupid references to, oh, you know, the time you tried to drill a hole in your head. You, you even notice it like when they go into the hotel and uh, where the snooty hotel guy is telling them they've got a ghost on 12. And, uh, you know, he introduced Dr. Ray Stance and Egon. <laughs> he, he does get kind of kicked around for a <laughs> yeah. lot of the movie. But this is the scene where he makes the suggestion that's going to turn around for everybody. He establishes himself as like he is the alpha geek in this group and battling it out with Ray for a lot of the movie. He is now the alpha geek. I have figured this out. We're going to total protonic reversal. We're reversing the flow through the gate. And you, you buy all the pseudoscience right there and you're like, yes, Egon. That is my moment of truth for this movie. Growing up, you know, I'm, I'm 11 turning 12 that summer when this movie is coming out. I am a uh, hopeless, pathetic geek going into that summer. And uh, I was, it was good to see the geek get some. I was like, nice, very nice. Here's a guy, you know, he's sitting there getting hit on by the secretary. And he says, oh, I collect spores, moles, and fungus. You know, he goes from that to being like the hero who comes up with the big solution at the end of the movie. And that was my moment of truth. <laughs> it's a wonderful moment. And one of the things that I think punctuates it in such a lovely way is, you know, he says, all right, we need to, we need to cross the streams. And it's Venkman who pops in and he goes, uh, I thought crossing the streams was bad. And he says it in this, like, this petulant way, like, it's the first time Venkman has displayed it. He's retained any of the knowledge that's been thrown at him in the entire movie, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the first time he shows even the slightest micron of risk management. <laughs> and you get a sense, like, maybe he does have a sense of self-preservation. Maybe Venkman can see the far side of tomorrow, you know? And he gets like, no, no, there's definitely a slim chance we're going to survive. And the way, the way he sells he sells near suicide in a really compelling manner. And you're like, okay, you know what? Okay, I love this plan. He actually sells Venkman. That's the great thing. Egon somehow 
passes a he passes he a check on Venkman. Like, how did that happen? The, I mean, it's like but Venkman's <laughs> reaction to that is so priceless, and it's something that is I've I've probably said every line in this movie at some point in my life in a real life situation, like applied lines to places where they didn't belong. But this one, when he hears that, Venkman hears that information, and he goes. I love this plan. And he slaps and the loving slap and he goes, I'm excited about it. Let's do it. And anytime in, in any political campaign, in any football huddle, anywhere I've ever been, probably 10 times in my life, I've done that to somebody. When it's like this, we're down on our luck, something aren't going so well, somebody comes up with an idea of how we're going to handle it. I, was like, I love this plan. I slap, so let's do it. I'm excited about it. And it's this, this whole concept of Egon comes up with it, but then Bankman gives him the assist of, okay, I'm on board because, you know, Ray is, is gone bye-bye and, and Lincoln's like, I guess this is it. I guess this is how we're going to go. But um, it is. It's a, it's a great moment. The other moment I, I love about that when they, they are like, okay, great. We're going we're gonna to do this. And they're leaving. Zenimore is like, this job is definitely a lot more, not worth 11.5. <laughs> like, which is the greatest part because like that character was such a tack on to the movie, right? Like he, he felt like very much a token and, and he was. And that if there's if there's one soft spot in the movie, I, I think that, that would be it. You know, it's, it's the way they handled him. But to the movie's credit, the character kind of self references that a little bit like look i wasn't here for the beginning of this i got called on as extra help so i have some externality to all this and yeah this job kind of sucks i'm not going to kid you <laughs> like he's not <laughs> swept up in the in the in the romance of it all you know and, and even though like egon's like i have a breakthrough and megman's like okay and Zenimore's like i could really use some pto and it's, <laughs> it was just a nice like a nice reality check to all these guys they're all covered in the marshmallow right they're just here comes Mike when he's got a little in his hair, right? Like he's not covered in the stuff. Because he's the front this man. Guy, I mean, not even, not even the state marshmallow man can knock this guy down. That's how Teflon this dude yeah. is. But even it's just, marshmallow, it, it misses him. City. Exactly. Stance is like completely inundated. Penguin's <laughs> like, yeah, whatever, a little bit. You almost can't tell those two apart. Yeah. So oh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Which, which is so good. There's so much incredibly great dialogue in this movie. I would like for us to each offer our single favorite line or joke I, I'll, I'll start with mine um which is a kind of a throwaway line but it just every time i hear it i just crack up and i just and i love to quote it and nine times out of ten when i do it's so far out of context people don't know what the hell i'm saying but it's right after venkman gets slimed in the hotel and goes i feel so funky <laughs> I have used that every time I'm feeling a little off. I'm feeling like something shouldn't be as it really is. I'm feeling more or less okay, but I'm a little kind of trying to figure out. I'm like, oh, I feel so funky. And nobody knows what I'm saying. And that's kind of how I like it. And one day, I know I'm going to drop that. And some real serious, like super deep Ghostbusters fans are going to be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to come to get the high five for it. Not anytime soon, but one day it'll happen. And it'll be a great day when it does. That line is 10 times better than I was slimed or he slimed. Yeah, absolutely. I feel so funky I, 10 times. Well, because he's saying, like, he's on, he's on his back and he's like a turtle moving his arms and legs on the <laughs> proton pack, just completely just glistening. <laughs> Only Venkman would, would put it in that way. <laughs> he just had a major supernatural experience and he said, that's how he says it. Like, of course he does. It's just, yeah. it's just so, it's just such a great, a great thing. I just adore that line. I quote, you know, just to get back to something Joe was saying, like, I quote, anytime anything goes wrong with something in my kitchen, generally you don't see that in behavior from a major appliance. <laughs> like, you know, my daughter's gone to the ice maker and it's like spewed ice cubes all over. And I'll be like, generally you don't see that kind of behavior in a major appliance. <laughs> it's just enough where, like, you know it came from Ghostbusters and you get the recognition. 
So it's not quite going out on the limb that Bill went out on, yeah. but it's, it's still <laughs> that, a good that, that's, that, that's still advanced context seminar, like 401s type level stuff. That's really, that's really, <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. Joe, how about you? I'm going to, I'm going to cheat in true banking fashion. I'm going to cheat and, and go with two. One is the one I say most out of this, which is, I, I don't have to take this abuse from you. I got hundreds of people dying to abuse me. And I'll tell you, in a political life, that I get a ton of mileage out of that one. But the, the, my favorite, my favorite moment and favorite line is when they're in Dana's apartment in the building, and the building has been blown to hell. And they go and they turn the corner, and there are the stairs. And I think it's very, says, where do these stairs go? And Bankman looks over and he goes, they go up. And they just turn and go. And they don't make a meal out of the line. It actually never even pays off. But it is, to me, I, I love it so much because it is, it's funny. And yet at the same time, that is the moment where they go, we're going to go be heroes now. We have to take these stairs that go up. And we don't know what's on the other end of them. We don't know where they go. We just know that we have to take them. And that's when these guys go from being con artists and failed academics into, into being heroes. Yeah. And I think for me, fellas, the stairs go up. It, it touches on something I do love about this movie is that, you know, these guys are, obviously they're not very heroic heroes for a variety of different reasons. But even when they get to that point where they kind of ascend and they become pretty heroic heroes, they're still not particularly aware of it. They're still basically like plumbers having to take care of a really nasty clog in the drain. And they're just like, they got to get this job done and their motivations for it don't ever appear to be all that lofty. And they're just like, they're just so, they're so down to earth. And so, so to that point, yeah, that, that line, that line is so, is so perfect. Even when their people are cheering for them, like, well, this is a nice change of pace, but they don't buy it, you know, which is, which is so great. Ray's, Ray's actual motivation is, oh my God, I want to live in a house with a fireman's pole. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> he hasn't tried this pull. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, Chris, what's your favorite line? Well, I, there. Uh, I mean, this was almost a trick question because I could go all day. Uh, I have carried this from 1984, and I say it all the time. It's what I use instead of cussing in front of my kids. Mother pus bucket. Uh, <laughs> it is <Mother> timeless <laughs> and immortal. But my my favorite line is Ray. When somebody asks you if you're God, you say, say yes. yes. <laughs> and that's like my philosophy, kind of. <laughs> I mean, not that anybody ever asked me if I'm a God, but you got you to approach life like you got it, man. <laughs> you, you can't show weakness. <laughs> not now. <laughs> Goes of the Gozerian might be up there. <laughs> exactly. Wait, the wait. Destructor. <laughs> The great thing about this movie is just how quotable it is. A lot of great movies are great and memorable, but not necessarily quotable. A lot of movies that are quotable aren't necessarily great, but this is a great and quotable movie. I think that's one of the things that helps keep it alive and keep it kind of relevant because so many of the great lines that are quotable are not necessarily super specific references to a particular time or place or feeling or that sort of thing. So it ages really well. For a movie that really feels quite of a time and a place, early mid 80s, New York City, the best parts about the movie that make it work still play now. And when you show it to people who are seeing it for the first time, it's still really accessible and still really funny. And that's, I do love it when a great movie manages to keep its value for that long. And this trades on the cleverness of dialogue. And that can age like bread. And somehow this, this movie really doesn't. I think it's very much down to 
just the comic genius of Murray and Aykroyd and, and Ramis and all those. It just works so delightfully well. I just adore it. You know, before we wrap up, I'd like to offer a final editorial thought about Ghostbusters. It's sort of a meta comment because Ghostbusters, as a movie and as a franchise, um, you know, occupies an interesting place in our culture and, and in our pop culture for what it's done and what it continues to do. And and like so many of those kind of keystone things, it has a fandom that is not just big and enduring, but also it's been around for a long period of time. There's something double-sided that comes with all that. You know, when the sequel to Ghostbusters, uh, Ghostbusters 2, was released in 1989, it really failed to recapture the same magic that made Ghostbusters such a runaway hit. And that in turn, made it tough to pull the gang together for Ghostbusters 3, right? So when Harold Ramis died in 2014, the Ghostbusters property was opened up to development by other people. And that ultimately is what brought us to the Ghostbusters reboot of 2016, which featured an all-female lead cast and prompted a firestorm of online criticism over it. Now, honestly, I like that movie. You know, I don't, it's not great, but it's also not the flaming train wreck that its detractors so often say it is. And it's not some onerous social justice manifesto either. I mean, it really isn't. It's just a movie. It's a reboot. Take it for what it is. You know, it doesn't desecrate the original movie, uh, which more than a few of its detractors claim that it does. And in fact, many of the original Ghostbusters stars and its director all made cameos in the reboot to show their support for it. But despite all that, there were folks who hated the movie so much that they hounded its stars off social media with a campaign of sustained harassment that included racial and gender slurs, doxing, and death threats. And that's just, guys, that's just not acceptable you know, out in the world. I think the fan world really needs to understand that's that. That's not what being a fan is. No, it really isn't. And, and you know, the funny thing is, is that in 2020, we're due for a direct Ghostbusters sequel called Ghostbusters Afterlife. And that apparently descends from Ghostbusters 2 and kind of pretends the reboot never happened. And however that movie fares, I hope we don't see its cast and crew whipsawed by fans who have a self-ordained sense of ownership over something they never actually developed themselves. You know, fandom is wonderful, but toxic fandom is just another reason for why we can't have nice things. Preach. Yeah. So look, Chris, Joe, Tom, thank you for dropping in today. It was great to have you on the show. Please remember to leave your proton packs on the recharging station uh, by the door before you leave. Thanks to everyone listening, and we'll see you again here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.